This is The Playbook. It's a terrible life to live in scarcity, and it's one in which I hope to change, if any of you feel that way ever, your mindset to move to a different world. Because no matter what you have or what you gain, and I'm living proof of it, nine months out of law school, I was a millionaire. Three years after law school, my first exit was $3.4 billion in 1995. A billion dollars was a lot of money in 1995. People weren't just throwing that kind of B word around. And yet, with all that money coming from nothing, I lived in the world of not enough. Always wanting more money, more happiness, more health, and more wealth. And it was a difficult world to live in. Now my mom, like many of yours probably, my mom had a motto, right? Doctor, lawyer, engineer, or failure. <laughs> the fetus wasn't fully developed until after graduate school, which is probably why all of my siblings except for me went to the Ivy Leagues and went through that process. But when I graduated law school, um, I decided that not only, I got a job offer out of law school to be an oil and gas litigator. Now, the only reason I wanted to be an oil and gas litigator, proud that I graduated law school, uh, was I wanted to be rich. The reason I wanted to be rich is I wanted to buy my mom a house. It was that simple. I ran the most notable sports agency in the world and most of my athletes wanted to be rich and play football so they could buy their mom a house. So it was a very common thing. I dreamed of being rich and buying my mom a house and I thought if I buy my mom a house, my life will be complete. I'll be happy the rest of my life. That's all I want. In fact, in second year law school, I remember sitting on the edge of my bed in a recession and saying to myself, gosh, if I just could buy my mom a house and pay off my law loans, I would literally, excuse my language, shovel shit with my hands six days a week, 12 hours a day in gratitude. That's how much I wanted to be rich. That's how much pressure in the world of scarcity, of not having enough. That's all I wanted. And so when I graduated law school, I had two job offers. One, to be a real lawyer. An oil company hired me in 1992, $150,000 salary plus bonus to work for an oil company. And that was a lot of money back then. It may still be a lot of money right now out of school, but it certainly uh, got me excited. But I also, because I wanted to be rich, always kept my options open. I was always looking for opportunities, options, touches of favor. Keeping my options open, I got a job offer in the internet. And I remember going to my mom and asking her, what should I do? Should I be an oil and gas litigator or should I sell legal research? Should I work in the internet? Without blinking, my mom said what? Right? Internet's a fad. <laughs> Her exact words were, be a real lawyer. <laughs> now, this is a lesson that may resonate with all of you, and if it does, please write it down and access it, especially when you're in college. There's two types of people in the world. There's ignorant people who don't know what they don't know, and then there's ignorant people that don't know what they don't know. And within the context of those two types of ignorant people, there's ignorant, humble people that admit they don't know what they don't know. And then there's the ignorant, arrogant people. And there's two types of ignorant, arrogant people. Um, as if any of you follow me or, or may after this, hopefully follow me, you'll see that I have a really big social following. It's embarrassing to my kids. Um, but it's also powerful to my kids because I'll 
tell them or their friends, hey, don't mess with me or I'll post about you. Uh, but more importantly, there's a lot of ignorant arrogance in social media, right? Somebody, Gary Vee is one of my best friends. Somebody said uh, when I first started building my brand online, you stole gratitude from Gary Vee. I stole gratitude from Gary Vee, right? I'm older than Gary Vee. My mom taught me to be thankful when I was three. <laughs> It'd be literally mathematically impossible for me to steal gratitude, let alone from Gary Vee. He wasn't alive. But that's how ignorant and arrogant the haters are out there, comparing themselves, living in a world of not enough, thinking that if they make your life worse, that they'll make their lives better. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, you better get used to ignorant, arrogant people telling you what you can't do. One thing I've learned about ignorant arrogance, about people who tell me what I can't do or hate on me or attack me or judge me or put their conditions upon me, is 100% of them are behind me. It's so interesting that in my life that all the people that sit in a situation that I want to be in, all of the great thought leaders and mentors, all the people who I read about and then get to meet, they're always so encouraging. Hey, let me help you. I've paid the dummy tax. You can do it. This isn't as hard as it seems. You can get here. And the only people to tell me I can't get there are the people that aren't even where I am. Make sure you remember that about these ignorant, arrogant people. But those really aren't the ignorant, arrogant people that I concern myself, especially in entrepreneurship, because there's a much more dangerous community of ignorant, arrogant people that really stop the creation, the collaboration, the coordination, the dreams that are gonna save this world. You guys are going to save this world, not recycling. Recycling will give you enough time to save it, but you guys are the ones that are gonna save the world, I promise you. Look to see what I'm experiencing today. I was the CEO of Samsung's phone division when I was 31 years old. People would tell me when I held up a Windows CE device, they didn't call them smartphones back in 1999, they called them convergence device. This so-called convergence device was known as the PC-E-phone. Pretty clever, right? PC and a phone. Uh, but more importantly, the majority of the haters out there would tell me, oh, way too big, way too expensive. Nobody will ever be able to have a video call to China for free. This will never work. Those people didn't bother me. The people that bother the entrepreneurs the most is this other subset of ignorant, arrogant people. And they're called people who love you. My mom. My mom loves me more than anyone. And you know what she told me when I told her I was going to go into the internet instead of maritime law, admiralty law, oil and gas litigation for 150,000 plus bonus? The internet's a fad, Dave. This is the dumbest decision you'll ever make. Until my, nine months later when I bought her a home. And three years later when we exited for $3.4 billion. Imagine the ignorant arrogance of the people that love you the most. Why are they so dangerous to entrepreneurs? Because they love you so much. And there is nothing more scary than your kid being an entrepreneur. Because the last thing you want your kid to experience is something called pain. They are so afraid for us, the people that love us the most, they're more afraid for us than they are for themselves. They're more afraid for you than they are for anything else. And therefore, they're going to give you bad advice. 
So remember in your entrepreneurial journey to appreciate the people that love you. Take their advice like a handful of sand and when they say something that resonates with you, hold on to that grain of sand, but let the rest of the sand fall through your hands and just say thank you for loving me so much. But just because you love me doesn't mean you're giving me good advice. My mom was a teacher. She made $17,000 a year. What does she know about the internet? The internet's not a fad, it's still here. It's still here. And people are still making billions of dollars on it. So when someone tells me Web3 is a fab, Web2.5 is a fad, when they told me as I was working in the Silicon Valley, transcoding the internet onto WAP phones in the middleware space, oh, that'll never work. It was the ignorant, arrogant ones that loved me the most, that caused me the most pain and created the most fear or resistance to my success. Appreciate the people that love you. I'm not saying don't listen to them, but like I told you earlier, only hold on to the lessons that resonate with you, regardless who's giving them to you. Be wary of the ignorant arrogance. They don't know what they don't know. You are the only one that knows what you are capable of. I can dream for you, I can wish for you, I can hope for you, but it's up to you. It's up to you to find people who sit in a situation you want to be in and ask them for help. And then to create, collaborate, and coordinate better than what they've come up with already. Take the head start. They've paid the dummy tax, I've paid the dummy tax. And so when I graduated law school, I took that job, as I told you, nine months out of law school, bought my mom a house, exited from Westlaw into Thomson Reuters, and then went to the Silicon Valley. Now, I had everything I ever dreamed of. By the time I was 30, I was living here. I was running Samsung's phone division. I was a multimillionaire, had my dream home in Rancho Santa Fe. I married my dream girl. I married the girl that I first fell in love with in the fourth grade. I asked her to go steady through my best friend in the sixth grade at Cuyamaca uh, camp, sixth grade camp. She embarrassed me and said no, tell him to ask me himself. And, he made it worse by saying, dude, she said no. So when I got home, I threw an egg at her, <laughs> called her ugly, <laughs> threw rocks at her, asked her why her friends were prettier than her. So she hated me. But now that I was 30 years old, living in my hometown of San Diego, in my dream house with my dream girl, for the first time in my life, I wasn't happy. The reason I wasn't happy is that Although I had transferred my life, my mindset from a world of not enough, I transferred it to a world of just enough. Just enough for me. So nothing anymore was happening to me. Everything was happening for me, but I lived in a world of a zero-sum game. Everything was a trade or negotiation. Even my philanthropy, right? I would give to receive. Recognition, admiration, to get something back. The world of just enough is what I see a lot on social media with people standing in front of cars they don't own, houses they don't own, telling you from one incident of success how to truly be fulfilled, passionate, and purposeful. From one incident of success. They live in this world of just enough for me, buying things they don't need to impress people they don't like. That was the world I was living in. Now wonder I was empty. Now wonder 
I was so unhappy because it was a glamorized emptiness that I lived in. And I see that as well with a lot of the athletes that I represented at Lee Steinberg, this glamorized, empty loneliness that everybody wants the job in the life that you have, but yet you don't want it because it's not fulfilling. You're living in a zero sum game every time it's a competition. And so to heal that emptiness as an entrepreneur and to continue my belief, you see, when I was little, I believed that money would buy me love and happiness if I bought that house and that car for my mom and I could buy whatever I wanted. Now I lived in this world of just enough, buying things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like, but money confirmed to me, oh, it does bring all this stuff to me. Why do I still feel empty? And so I started to surround myself with the wrong people and the wrong ideas. And I got a job out of Samsung running the most notable sports agency in the world. And I started having kids. So not only did I have my dream wife, I had three dream baby girls under 10 years old, and I was running the most notable sports agency in the world. So not only was I a multimillionaire, but I could do things or had access to things that even billionaires couldn't afford to do. The Super Bowl on the sidelines, the Pro Bowl, the Masters, Kentucky Derby. We represented eight first picks in the draft. I represented Warren Moon, Troy Aikman, and Steve Young. Lennox Lewis, Evander Holyfield, and Oscar De La Hoya at one time. Sabathia and Ramirez. We had over, and this won't sound like a lot of money to you guys, but at that time we had $2 billion in management. That wasn't just two clients. That was a lot of clients back then. Pat Mahomes, who's Lee's client today, makes probably close to a quarter of that by himself. But back then, that was a lot of money. They made a movie about our firm. Jerry Maguire was base, Cam and Crow followed Lee around, and they made a movie about our firm. I was living in that world, and yet still empty. And there's three things that changed my life. Number one, when I was 30 years old, my dad sent me a, a birthday present. Now, my dad left when I was five. I had a single mom, six kids. I didn't get along with my father because I always tried to change my father and not understand him. I hated my father. I loved my father so much when I was five and he ruined everything my 10th birthday by forgetting my birthday. But not because he forgot my birthday. What ruined the relationship between me and my father was that when I confronted him about forgetting my birthday when I was 10, he told me he didn't forget my birthday, that he didn't believe in birthdays. But he celebrated my siblings' birthdays and his birthday and his uh, girlfriend's birthday, who was closer to my age than his. So what I realized at 10 years old was my dad was a liar. My dad was a cheater. He was an overseller, back-end seller, manipulator. And I hated him. So at 30 years old, as I'd reached this pinnacle, got married to my dream girl, built my dream house in Rancho Santa Fe, my dad sends me the first birthday present in 20 years, I was elated. I thought, oh, thank God, I'm going to reestablish a relationship with my father, far more important than any amount of money that I've ever made. I want my dad to love me. So I opened up this gift and he had given me a sport coat and I put it on immediately and I started to cry. My wife's like, what's the matter? I was like, oh, my dad gets it, it fits me. That means he like actually took the time to find someone that could fit a jacket to this you know, unbelievably unique physique that I had. 
<laughs> and I looked in the jacket and see if it was Armani or if it said especially made for my son's 30th birthday. But instead of any type of birthday wish or insignia or brand, he had torn out all the pockets in my jacket. I went from complete joy to rage once again, thinking, how dare he do this? So I called him up immediately and I said, Dad, I got the present. He said, oh, thank God it got there on time. Happy birthday, son. Well, happy birthday. I can't wear the jacket. Why would you send me a jacket that I can't wear? He said, well, it's not for wearing. So what do you mean it's not for wearing? He said, I sent it to you to hang in your closet to remind you that money doesn't buy love or happiness. I'm worried about you. You're worried about me? Yeah, I'm worried about you. You're just like me. Now I lost it when he said that. I said, I'm just like you? He said, yeah, I don't want you to live your life chasing money. It will follow you if you do the right things. If you do good deeds, it will follow you. I don't want you to make the same mistakes as me, son. Hang it in the closet. Remember that you can't be buried with anything. Be buried in that jacket. The pockets, you don't need them. I wish I was ready to hear what he was trying to teach me, but instead, like a typical 30-year-old, living in ignorant arrogance, I told my father I hated him. I called him a liar, a cheater, manipulator, an overseller, a back-end seller, and I told him to F off, and I hung up. I continued my journey for six years as I was running Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment now, surrounded by all these amazing people and all these amazing events and things in my life, more money than I ever dreamed of, and so my best friend, Rob, who still lives here in San Carlos, by the way, my best friend, Rob, who also, by the way, was the boy that asked for me and my wife to go study at sixth grade camp and made fun of me. My best friend, Rob, I had been best friends with since I'd been nine years old. Now, 27 years later, I wanted to invite him to the Masters. Huge golf fan. We were invited to go with Wayne Gretzky, Warren Moon, private jet, the NetJet party unbelievable experience and I was so excited to tell Rob that I could take him on this trip with me. So I asked him, I said, Rob, I got an early birthday present for you. You're coming to the Masters with me. We're flying with these guys, private parties, anything you want on me. And with a dead face, he said, no, I'm not going. I said, what do you mean? It's on me, man. Why, why won't you go with me to the Masters? Six, I don't like who you hang out with and what you're doing. You see, for the last six years, I was surrounding myself with the wrong people and the wrong ideas, which led me to do the wrong things, which led me to progress in a negative trajectory. You see, behavior is an energy, and so is money. Unfortunately, we can't be aware of the progress of behavior instantaneously. Our human capabilities are not capable of seeing progress. I tell people all the time, you like instant gratification? Just know the instant gratification of good behavior is good progress, but you can't see it, so you have to trust me. But the three characteristics of energy, which behavior's energy and money's energy, is one, energy aggregates on itself. It attracts more like energy. Two, energy compounds on itself, meaning you get an exponentiality to the energy that you're aggregating. So 
behavior or money is going to compound on itself in the direction in which you utilize the energy. It's going to aggregate and compound, giving you this unbelievable exponential result, which allows people to say, oh my gosh, you're an overnight success. No, I've just been consistently, persistently pursuing my potential by utilizing behavior in the right trajectory towards what I think I want, aggregating, accelerating, and compounding on itself. It accelerates everything. Good behavior is terrific, but bad behavior is not. Why is that? Because I told you, human capabilities don't allow you to see progress. So what happens is most people that start creating good behavior don't see the results, so they quit. They quit. It takes 90% of the behavior to allow the human capability to see a result. So what happens with good behavior, right? Let's use an example of a lily pond, for example. If I told you that we have one lily in a lily pond and it'll take 20 years to fill the lily pond, as the lily pond would represent the behavior in order to aggregate, accelerate, and compound to fill or fulfill you, we start with one lily, the next year you'll have two lily, the next year you'll have four lily. Well, in 18 years from now, the pond would only be 25% full. That means that most people after 18 years would finally be aware of some sort of progress and most likely be extremely discouraged and disappointed in the progress that was being made because they don't understand aggregation, acceleration, and compounding. So what happens? 99% of the people would quit the behavior to get to the 25% of the pond being full after 18 years. Within those 18 years, all the ignorant, arrogant people would start getting more attention and intention than what you believe. You'd start wanting what other people wanted for you, listening to what other people listened to, listening to your own negative thoughts, Stop listening to yourself, start talking to yourself. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Start, stop listening to other people and start talking to yourself. Because you don't want to be one of the 99% that are going to quit as entrepreneurs because they don't see the progress or after 18 years or 90% of the effort, they only see 25% of the result. Sadder than that, after one more year, the pond is 50% full, but because of human nature and because of human awareness, 99% of the 1% that still remain quit when they see they're only 50% there after 19 years. So it takes 19, 18 years for 99% of the people to quit, but getting even closer, even though progress has doubled, they're still only halfway there after 19 years, so 99% of the 1% quit because they're not aware of the progress, aggregation, acceleration, and compounding of the good behaviors that they're putting in. And how many years away are they from the fulfillment of their pond? One, just one year. Yet, 99% of the 99% are gone because they wanna see that progress. Even worse than the positive aggregation, acceleration, and compounding of behavior, whether it be money or behavior, is worse, and I see this now that I'm 55 years old, it's the negative part. Because I was on a trajectory, doing the things I shouldn't do, surrounding myself with the people I shouldn't be surrounding myself 
by aggregating bad behavior. And there, my best friend, Rob, who was truly a good friend, right? All of the people in my life that cared most about me were the ones I was telling I hated. My mom, my dad, my best friend. I hated them because they told me the truth that my bad behavior was aggregating, compounding, and accelerating. And like bad behavior, unlike good behavior, we don't think we're gonna get a result. See, when we have good behavior, we expect instant results, right? We're on a diet, we go look at the, the scale and we're so surprised, no results. <laughs> but if you continue the good behaviors of nutrition and exercise, eventually everyone will be like, oh my gosh, you look terrific, you're so healthy, you lost weight. And it'll seem to them like it's been overnight, but you put 90% of the effort in now that you can actually see a result. Well, the same thing happens to the negative. So if you're drinking and doing drugs and not sleeping right and eating wrong and creating disease in your life, you'll be one of those guys like my friend who recently, last week, always telling me, man, I'm like, you know, I stopped that stuff in my 30s. Oh, look at me. I'm skinnier than you. I'm healthier than you. I've been drinking, smoking, doing drugs for 19 years, Dave. No effect at all till last week when he didn't wake up. Negative behavior aggregates, accelerates, and compounds as well, except for we don't expect a result. So if you want to be an entrepreneur, not only do you have to understand the ignorant arrogance, but you have to understand the aspects or characteristics of energy. Energy aggregates, compounds, and accelerates. Good behavior, money are both energy. Both are indicative of successful entrepreneurs. They know and understand their relationship with that energy, with their behaviors and money. So I walked away from Rob and told him I hated him, but I still had one more great red flag in my entrepreneur journey. I had more money than I ever dreamed of, more success than I ever dreamed of. Money had bought me love and happiness in my mindset, my heart set, my feelings, and my handset. And two weeks after, my best friend had told me he didn't want to go to the Masters, didn't want to hang out with me, didn't like what I was doing and who I hung out with, and I told him I hated him. I told my wife I was going to go to the Grammy Awards with a guy named Little John. Uh, he was originally, when I started working with him, a skateboarder, and I got him a gig with Grey Goose Vodka to be on the Grey Goose Music Tour, and we had become good friends, and he invited me to the Grammy Awards where he was being awarded. My wife told me when I told her I wanted to go that I should not go. I had three girls under 10 years old. She told me I wasn't paying attention to the family. I wasn't paying attention to the activity I get paid for. That's what I call work, activity I get paid for. And so should you. It's a lot more fun. There's activity I don't get paid for too. That's fun. But I like activity I get paid for and I focus in on it. She told me that I really started to, or should start paying attention to who I was. So at that stage of my life, I lied to her. Told her I had a business meeting, changed my clothes in my car, and went up to Los Angeles and came home at 5.30 in the morning, a complete wreck. And who was waiting for me? My dream girl, the love of my life. And when I walked in, she looked at me and I could tell she wasn't happy, but she had seemed 
to be aggravated or agitated or angry with me many times over the last 10 years from idiotic behaviors, bad behaviors that were aggregating. But this time she said to me, I'm not happy. And then she said that she was leaving. And she told me I better take stock in who I was and what I wanted to become, or she thought that I would be dead. At that time, I wasn't ready to hear what she was going to tell me, the same way I wasn't ready to hear what my dad told me, my mom told me, or my best friend told me. So I told her what I told those other people who actually cared about me, that I hate her. How dare you talk to me that way? Look around you. Who do you think did all of this? And I went to bed and woke up even more aggravated, hating everyone who loved me. And as I sat there thinking about how I was going to steal everybody's happiness, because happiness was derived from making money, and I was sitting there thinking about what I could do and what lawyer I should call, and so full of hate and anger, I looked over, and in my closet was that jacket. I hadn't seen that jacket in years, and somehow that's all I could see was that jacket. And as I saw that jacket, and as I choke up today, still thinking about that jacket, I looked at that jacket and I said to myself, I don't hate my dad. I certainly don't hate my mom, and I don't hate my best friend, and I definitely don't hate my wife. I hated myself. I was the liar the cheater, the manipulator, the overseller, the back-end seller. And although I had everything I ever dreamed of, I was unhappy. Go get off your ass. Don't sit at home high, broke, sick on your mom's couch. Get off of it. Go out and help somebody. And I promise you, you will experience appreciation and acknowledgement. You will have a fulfillment. You'll feel good. So if everyone here feels good when they give, why is it that we're so hesitant to ask people to give? Why would we want to deny them what you love feeling? But yet somehow in this zero-sum game, we're taught the more you give, the more you receive. Bullshit. The more you receive, the more you can give. If your intention is to help people, which I would say 99%, if not 99.9% .9 of the people on this earth, somehow subconsciously or unconsciously believe that they're part of a unified, abundant system of thought where we're all connected to one another to provide value to one another, to help one another, to live our best self and our best life, then ask for help. Appreciate, acknowledge, and ask for more. It will fill that larger vessel so you can appreciate it, acknowledge it, and even ask for more. That is the mindset, the heart set, and the hand set of an entrepreneur. That is your journey. If you really want to be an entrepreneur, you're here to add value. And you are here to add value by receiving more, asking for help, and giving it all away, or having it lost, stolen, or manipulated. But we're all going to aggregate, compound, and accelerate goodness together to add value. And along the way, believe it or not, you'll make a lot of money, you'll help a lot of people, and you'll have a lot of fun. And uh, I promise you, if you make a lot of money, help a lot of people, and have a lot of fun, you'll be happy. And if I can empower you to be happy, to empower others to be happy, that will make me happy. I appreciate all of you sincerely. Thank you so much.
Awesome. Now it's, who cares what I think? Let's hear what you're listening for. More importantly, I, my favorite part is to answer questions. I will tell you the first questions, always the hardest question to ask. I don't know why uh, when every class I sat in, in undergrad, law school, business school, nobody ever likes to ask the first question. So if anybody wants to ask the first question, great. If not, I have plants here that will ask the first question. So you're not going to beat me at this game. Anyone have a first question? All right, go ahead. Thank you. You, uh, you mentioned that your mom, like like you you had said that she said that you were like focusing on the wrong God instead of the right God, and you mentioned like being spiritual. Do you feel like turning your life around, as you put it, it like are you spiritual? Are you religious? And like do you think that's like pretty critical to anyone who is yeah. trying to do something similar? I think that's a great question. So I am faithful, and I don't think I need to put a religion, philosophy, theory or spirituality to it, to define it. But here's what I believe. And you don't have to believe what I believe. I know for a fact those people that believe in something bigger than them, those people that believe in something that's omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, that protects them and promotes them and loves them more than their mom, do much better off in this lifetime. And the analogy that I give is that with that faith, and I believe me, I have a very religious family. I've studied all types of philosophies, theories, and spirituality. I've read The Course in Miracles for seven straight years. I've studied the Bhagavad Gita. I have every single religious text, Old Testament, New Testament, all of them I've studied. And what it comes to to me is I believe you're better off in this lifetime believing there's something bigger than you that loves you more than your mom. And the analogy that I give is I remember when I was little, I reached out to go touch the stove. And my mom never yelled or hit. She was a second grade teacher at her core. In fact, my wife still tells my mom, I'm 55, you know what David's problem is? You never hit him and you never yelled at him. <laughs> never. But I remember when I reached out to touch that stove, my mom slapped my hand and screamed at me, no. I immediately started to cry. Why are you punishing me? What did I do? And she hugged me immediately. I'm not punishing you. I'm protecting you. You just don't know what the stove's going to do to you. That analogy is how I live my life. So when I don't get the business deal that I thought I wanted, I didn't get into the school that I thought I wanted, when the girl broke up to me that I thought I wanted, whatever it is that happened that I thought I wanted, the same way I wanted to touch the hot stove, and I got slapped and screamed at, supposedly punished. One advantage of being older is I can see the revelation, the unraveling. I'm just being protected and promoted. Some people think I'm a little sick when pain, which I believe is an indicator that I got a better place to be, a better situation to be in. When pain occurs in my life, setbacks, failures, and mistakes, I have this smirk on my face and I get a little bit giddy and people are like, that guy is extremely weird. Like he just lost, you know, 10 million in that business deal and he's smirking and giggling and you know why? Because I'm being protected and promoted. I just can't wait to see what happens next. Something better is coming my way. That takes a lot of faith. Can I prove it religiously? Not a chance. Spiritually? Not a chance. Philosophically? No chance. Or theoretically? No chance. Or even mathematically. But I know one thing, that outside the minutes and moments that I don't have faith, that that's the best choice that I can make. And I encourage anyone to have faith in whatever 
they believe is bigger than them, an omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing source that loves you more than your mom, always protecting and promoting them, especially as an entrepreneur. Because if you're not making mistakes, you're not going to make it. I promise you, those mistakes are awesome. There's no way you're ask any great entrepreneur for the mistakes that they made and sit down for a few hours. <laughs> great question. Next question. So when you're trying to build good habits or break bad habits, are there like tips, tricks, or like systems that you set in place to work on that? Great question again. So I call it a practice. So I'm a practitioner. So I'm practicing things and I love a golf analogy of, you know, going to the range. So there's a few things that uh, I utilize for habits. One, time. To me, time is the only quantifiable measurement of progress. So for example, you notice I said, I spend minutes and moments outside of faith. So let's take something that's very subjective or, or arbitrary, like worrying. So how can I see my progress in worrying? Well, how much time did I spend in the unconscious competency or the ego-based consciousness of worrying? Worrying is a duplicative negative. Not only is it interfering with you and your potential, but it's wishing for what you don't want. I used to worry for days, weeks, months, and years. Now I worry for minutes and moments. My practice based on abundance is I'm practicing identifying what I'm doing to interfere with my potential. I'm practicing identifying it first and then reminding, remembering, recollecting what is it I want in the trajectory of what I think I want and then asking for help or helping others and then doing it. And so I use time as that variable for progress. So I'll lower the bar for time. Uh, you know, let's take working out. Who here likes to work out? I love it, right? It's, I tell people I love it and I work out a minimum of an hour a day and usually, you know, kids especially, they look at me because they don't know what it's like to be over 55 and not on testosterone or HGH and they look at me and they're like, really? You work out? <laughs> yeah, this is what it looks like, but I do. <laughs> but the secret to working out what's so interesting is that I've very rarely been super excited about working out when I start. I work out really early in the morning. I have an unwinding routine to make sure I wake up at 4 a.m. every day to be a productive, accessible, gracious. So I have this thing about things that I want, good habits, that the first five minutes suck. I'll just tell myself, first five minutes suck of a workout, of a run, of whatever else I'm gonna do. And if I don't think it sucks after five minutes, I'm gonna quit. But I lower the bar. Just give myself five minutes. I'm gonna, write this book. I'm just going to start for five minutes. If it sucks after five minutes, I'm going to go do something else. I will tell you, I've never quit. If I can get myself moving for five minutes in the right direction, if I can practice where I want to be or think I want to be for five minutes, and here's what's even better than I've never stopped after five minutes, is that when I finish, I've never said to myself, man, I wish I didn't work out. I always feel great, but yet I can tell you this morning, I was like, I don't work out. It was really cold and wet this morning. I don't know, most of you probably weren't up before, but it was pouring down rain and freezing. I did not want to work out. But I told myself, all right, just give it five minutes. Go back to bed if you don't like it after five minutes. After an hour, I was on cloud nine, ready to go. So I use time as that variable uh, to lower the bar. I use time as a variable to quantify the progress that I'm making. I try to spend minutes and moments uh, interfering with what I want 
and most of the rest of the time pursuing consistently, persistently. I will tell you, consistency is a super habit. If you just practice being consistent, you're practicing having a habit machine. Very few people, there, there's a difference. I represented the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I represented some amazing athletes. I work with great thought leaders, business partners, and they all have what I call the empty mile. And what I find is there is a subtlety of success that exists in people that are consistent. You see, most people go the extra mile every once in a while. Oh, but I studied dad till two in the morning on Saturday. Hmm. And then you're going to use that to justify why you didn't get the grade that you should have gotten by being consistent every day. See, people go the extra mile every once in a while and then justify going the extra mile every once in a while why they're not where they want to be or should be to their potential. The empty miles where you want to live and all the great spirits of excellence, all the people who understand the subtleties of success are consistent every day. They do their best, learn lessons and have fun every day. They may not do it till two o'clock every day, but they do it every day. Two minutes every day is worth more than two hours on a Saturday. Write that down. I guarantee it. Two minutes a day is worth more than two hours on a Saturday because you're living in the empty mile. There's nobody there. It's the least competitive space. And let me tell you one of the greatest lessons of wisdom that I got from a guy named Bob Parsons, who's one of my favorite entrepreneurs. He was the founder of GoDaddy. Think he personally on his exit got four billion himself. Bob Parsons in an interview with me, and I have 1400 podcasts, uh, the playbook, one of the top podcasts. I have all the great from John Hennessy, the chairman of Alphabet, to Brett Favre, to Cameron Diaz, to guys like Bob Parsons. And I'm sucking the best lessons out for all of you. So listen to it. But listen to this. I'm interviewing him and I said, how important is it to love what you do or learn to love what you do, Bob? Because I believe you can do both. Some of us are lucky just to have our skills, knowledge, and desire align with what we're loving. And others of us use our skills, knowledge, and desire to love what we're doing and learning to love it. But if you love what you do or have learned to love what you do, not only won't you work a day in your life, but more importantly, in the context of the empty mile, when you love what you do, it will tell you all its secrets. And those secrets from consistent behavior, they put you into the empty mile. It's why so many people do the same thing that Gary Vee and I do, but they don't get what Gary and I get out of it. Because we are consistent every day, persistent without quit, loving what we do, and it's telling us the secrets about how to build a community, how to create opportunity, how to build a brand. Even if you're a middle-aged mutant turtle like a David Meltzer, to think that there's millions of people that are listening to you on you know, Instagram. I don't even know how to use Instagram. I didn't even know what a blue check was. My kids told me when I got verified, holy shit, dad, you're famous. I'm like, what do I do? Oh, you got a blue check? I'm like, what's that? You're verified. I'm like, what's that? They're like, dad, can I DM you? My name's David Meltzer. All my kids are Marissa, Mia, Miles, and Marlena Meltzer. So of course I said back to them, right? I have like, at that time, 400,000 followers. I was like, hey, you're gonna DM me? I'll MM you. but it told me it's secrets. I want you to learn all the secrets that nobody else knows. I want you to live in the empty mile. It's not competitive. The competitive part is competing with yourself to do 
the five minute minimum a day, every single day in a consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential, not your parents' potential, not your friend's potential, not what's missing, not what you don't have, but what you want in your potential, your beliefs, and don't be afraid of being a hypocrite and learning from it and going ahead and changing your mind every day if you have to. It's okay. It just is an indicator that you're learning something when you change your mind. The people that worry me never change their mind because you and I both know one thing. This world is changing at a pace so accelerated and rapid that if you don't change your mind, an adaptable intelligence even far more uh, valuable than an emotional intelligence. So you got to change your mind in this world. Reevaluate every day, reprioritize every day. Prioritization, antidote to procrastination and feeling overwhelmed. If you know how to prioritize, it means you know what's important to you so that as things occur, you know what to do now and what to do next, which creates the greatest efficiencies, effectiveness, and statistical success in everything you do. So if you know and are prioritizing today, you're golden. That means you're on the right trajectory. If you're not, you're procrastinating or feeling overwhelmed, so then work on understanding what's important to you so you then can prioritize so you know what to do now and know what to do next. My kids always ask me, Dad, what do you want for me? I said, I want you to know what to do now and know what to do next. The rest will take care of itself. That's it. Do your best, learn lessons, have fun. If it's simple to do, unfortunately it's simple not to do. All right, next question. Uh, right back here, sorry. How did you get your girl back? Sorry, this is personal. My wife? Yeah. Oh, no, personal's fine. <laughs> well, first of all, I, um, I never lost her, okay. right? So um, when I sat on my bed that day, there's two smart things that I did. Forgiveness was one of the things um, that I teach, not only gratitude, but I sat there forgiving myself and being accountable. And so then I effectively communicated with her that um, I had forgiven myself for the things I did that I take accountability for him and I asked her for help. I said, I'm moving in the wrong trajectory. You are my dream. I don't want to lose you or my kids. Can you please help me? I'm going to do my best. And look, you don't change overnight. I was 38 years old. You don't change overnight. And so I managed her expectations and said, Instead of, I'm going to change, cold turkey, I'm going to be this great husband and this great father. I'm going to stop lying and cheating and manipulating and overselling. Even though it's quantum, it's not only energetic in my nature from practicing it so much, it's genetic in my nature. It's part of what my dad inher I inherited and my, and my grandfather. I see it in them. But you're going to help me, please. If you really want me to save my life, I need your help. And... I will tell you, thank goodness, she saved my life. The scariest time for my wife was two years after I started changing and we lost everything because I was so calm. Her uncle, who knew me since I was nine, uh, my best friend was my wife's cousin and, and her uncle was over at our house and it was before they evicted us from the house, before I lost it, a big house in Rancho Santa Fe. And she didn't know I was there, and she was crying in the kitchen. This is two years after. I was already progressing, and I heard her say to her, oh, oh my God, I don't know if Dave can pull us out of this. You know, I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. Is he going to be able to do it? And her uncle said one of the most inspiring things that just hit me in my heart. He said, 
I've known this kid since he was nine years old. I cannot wait to see what he does with his back against the wall. You're fine. You're fine, you'll see. And, you know, I asked for help. I didn't make any promises I couldn't keep. And I will tell you, I'm married 25 years. Uh, that was 17 years ago. And I wasn't the best husband in the world at that time. I wasn't the best father in the world at the time, but I can proudly tell you today, I have four children, 23, 21, 18, and 12-year-old son, and I'm one of the best fathers that I know and one of the best husbands that I know. And I'm so glad that my wife did stay with me and helped me become a better person. And I wish all of you that type of relationship uh, with someone. One real quick piece of advice that's in my book, three things to be happy, my grandfather told me. One, find one intimate partner in life that the liaison between you and everyone else, that your family, your friends, her family and her friends. Learn to love what you do. Have one activity that you get paid for that you love. A third of your life is spent with your family and friends. A third of your life is spent in activity you get paid for and buy the best bed that you can find. A third of your life is spent sleeping and he's from Russia, stooping. You can figure out what that means. So buy the best light, uh, bed that you can find. And I am the only mentor that I've had. I have for 17 years, I've had multiple mentors and I change them determining on where I wanna be. I have a sleep coach. My tomorrow starts today. I have an unwinding routine, 9 p.m. I put my mind, my body, and my soul in a position to recover and access information, then use meditation to transcend that information to plateau and grow. Most people go to bed at night and wake up more tired in the morning. Does not make sense to me. Most people live their lives like tube. Food in, food out. Food in, food out. Most of the people that I know live in Camus the Stranger. They push a big boulder to the top of the hill and it just rolls down the next morning. If you want to plateau and grow in your life, if you want to expand, accelerate, and aggregate your behaviors, you've got to understand sleep. You have to recover every night and access information outside of your conscious. And practice that, I practice sleeping. So those are the three things. Great question, by the way. And you guys can ask me anything. I don't, I want you to know the truth. Yeah, and then you. Yep. Uh, I was curious how you found like a good balance between work and like working your- Activity I get paid for? Yeah, yeah. Get paid for. How do you have balance? I had this question outside because I do meetups in every city I go to. There is, no exact balance. There is a weighted balance determinative upon your values, your personal, your experiential, your giving and your receiving values. You should not have the same balance in your life that I have in mine. I have millions of dollars. I have a wife. I have four children, right? Why would you have the same balance that I had? You should not be giving as much as me. You should be receiving way more so eventually it aggregates, accelerates, and compounds so you can give like I give. Don't let people tell you to be balanced. Now, you should give a minimal amount of time to everything, personal, experiential, giving, and receiving. So don't just, you know, lock yourself in some room and say, I don't need a life. You know, all I want to do is open this gym and, you know, be the next, you know, whatever. No, spend a minimum of time with friends. Spend a minimum of time calling your mom. Spend a minimum of your time going outside and exercising every day. Because two minutes a day is worth more than two hours on a Saturday. 
you don't trust me, if you're in Spanish or math, try doing 15 minutes of Spanish every day. Watch how all of a sudden great you are in Spanish. Or try cramming Spanish at the end of the semester. Not going to happen. Everything's like Spanish. Two minutes a day. Have a weighted balance in your life every day according to your values. Not your parents' values. Don't get guilted into being the great philanthropist at 18 years old. You got a lot of learning to do. Weight your balance to your values. If that's your mission in life and you know your skills, knowledge, and desire aligned with building a philanthropist, then yes, weight it towards giving. But if you want to be an entrepreneur, you better weight it in a different direction because you cannot build a business taking care of everybody else when you have nothing. Does that sound fair? Weighted balance. Great question. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I'm, I practice every day identifying what I'm afraid of. So there's two types of fear. Fear of the, the past and fear of the future. Fear of the past usually manifests itself as regret and guilt. So I started there. I said to myself, what I'm going to practice is identifying when I feel guilty or when I feel regretful. And then the fear of the future usually manifests itself in anxiety, worry, right? So then I said to myself, okay, I know that guilt and regret are the fear, predominantly the super category of the past, and I know anxiety and worry is the super category of the future. So I'm gonna start by practicing, identifying when I feel guilty, regretful, anxious, or worried. And my first practice was just those four, and I just practiced identifying, why do I feel guilty? And then I started practicing when I identify guilt, regret, anxiety, or worry, to instead of resisting it, logicking it, analyze, let it go. How many people have said that when you're worried about a test? Let it go, it's okay. You're gonna, ah, 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 ah. Makes me anxious just thinking about how stupid I was. <laughs> right? And then all you're doing is like wishing that question. Man, I hope the rules of perpetuity aren't on this test. Oh God, I can't learn the rules of perpetuity. Uh, guess what the first question on my trust in estates test in law school was? Rules of perpetuity. Right? And then the bar, the same thing. Rules of perpetuity. If I just would have identified the anxiety and stopped instead of resisted or logic or analyzed it, go over it, under it, through it, allowed it, lied to it, manipulated, cheated, or deny it. If I just would have stopped, breathe through my nose, out through my mouth, and remind and remember and recollect to the unified, abundant, infinite system of thought. If I just would have remembered that I'm being protected and promoted, if I just would have remembered what I wanted today, who I could help, who can help me, how best to get it done and prioritize again, I want to waste it all the time, emotion, value, and money in relationships that I ruined through regret, guilt, anxiety, and worry. If you want to stay ignorant and humble, 
then identify your fear. See, I've gone to super levels, not just the super categories of stopping, dropping, and rolling, knowing that when I'm in fear, my mind, my body, and my soul are on fire. And my mom told me, dude, if you ever catch on fire, stop, drop, and roll. I stopped, drop, and roll. But then I started to identifying the needs of my fear, the needs of my ego, the need to be right. Anyone have a need to be right? Good luck in marriage. Um, need to be offended, that's my nemesis. You know, it's like kryptonite to me. Dude, you got a need to be offended, step outside, it's gonna be there right waiting for you. You ever meet those people? <laughs> I used to get so offended at everything. The need to be separate from the infinite, abundant, unified system of thought. They need to be inferior, superior, anxious, frustrated, angry, guilty, resentful. Anybody ever had these needs? See, I started creating this, oh shit, you got a need to be offended. Stop, close your mouth, breathe. I got so good at it that sometimes when I couldn't stop because I was so frustrated, especially with either a very young child, one of mine, or my wife, that I'd be in my own head as I'm like saying stupid shit. Stop, shut up, breathe, stop. Oh yeah, you have a need to be angry right now. And when I learned to practice, now all of a sudden, instead of spending days, weeks, months, and years in the wrong trajectory in my life, in ignorant arrogance, I spend minutes and moments in ignorant arrogance every day. Majority of my time, ignorant, humble, don't know what I don't know. Xanders wrote a book and said, rule number five, don't take yourself so seriously. Somebody asked him, what's rule one through four? Go to rule number five. Life is so much easier. Don't take yourself. It doesn't mean you're not doing your best learning lessons and having fun. Just don't take yourself so seriously while you're doing it. That makes sense? It's counterintuitive, but does it make sense that you can actually do your best, learn lessons, and have fun, and yet still not take yourself so seriously, be ignorant and humble about it? Awesome. How much time we still have? Perfect. Okay, next question. And I'm going to be mingling and networking afterwards and still answering questions, but... Uh, I'm a time freak, so I'll stay with what the time frame they gave me. Go ahead. Reflecting on your journey, how do you perceive the dynamics of willpower versus serendipity? Oh, I love this question. So I believe that everyone has extreme willpower, and the willpower that I utilize is to identify and clear the interference between me and my potential. So instead of trying to use my willpower to go get something or to get more of something, more happiness, more health, more wealth, more worthiness, I use my willpower to identify what I'm doing to interfere with it and clear it. Um, so for me, willpower is that exercise. And then the second part of it was the, the like serendipitous. serendipitous. Yeah. I actually have a mathematical equation in case it resonates with you, go ahead, write this down, of serendipity, of luck, I assume you mean by serendipity, or coincidence. Here's what it is, and this is what I've learned in my life, which is why most people look at me and see the life that I'm living. They see my wife, my kids, my houses, my cars, my trips, my success, all the people that are around me, and they say, man, that's one serendipitous dude. I'll tell you how, right now, math, it's math, ready? What you pay attention to each day, what you focus in on, what you want every day, attention, plus what you give the five levels of intention to of what you want. Five levels of intention, I want you every day to do everything you can in the trajectory of what you want. 